Good morning, West Tonka, Bush Lake, those that are online and those that are here gathered. So glad that we can be together today. Um, and I'm using a lectern today, which I haven't used for a very long time because I had eye surgery a couple of weeks ago. And so my eyes are healing. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> Pray for the healing of my eyes. This gives me a little more proximity to referencing. So um, I'm going to be there. By the way, the upside of that is that colors are magnificent right now for me as I've gone through this cataract surgery, which I'm far too young for. I really believe that. But <laughs> it happened. So glad we're here as we continue our series, Longing for Better Days. It's a series on mental well-being, on faith and flourishing. Because God intended us to flourish, but our emotional well-being sometimes gets in the way of that. Mental health has been, I think, far too long a silent issue in the church. We flirt around it. But fortunately, it's coming out into the open, and I'm glad for that. In fact, in the course of this series, we've had kind of a fun way to describe it, that mental health is sometimes called the no-casserole illness. That is, we do really well as a church to come alongside and help those that are troubled, bringing them a casserole even. But when it comes to mental health, we don't always know what to say or what to do, so no casserole for you. And that's changing. Our goal in this series, and why we've given so many weeks to it, is we want to declare out loud, we believe God purposed us to be a healing church. So let's make it okay to talk about our emotional well-being and our mental health. And not just look to the professionals to help us get through these things. Because a lot of the healing is right here with us. Let us help each other. In your small groups, wherever you might be, don't be afraid to step into the space and let God do his mighty work in and through us. We want to be a healing church. Today I'm dealing with, I think, the hardest subject in the series to date. It's about darkness. When life closes in on you and you feel like you want to die. And in your lifetime, you will have moments where you feel like you just want to die. For some people, it's a frequent feeling. And unfortunately, some even act on the feeling. We've learned over these weeks that the leading cause of death for 15 to 25-year-olds is suicide. And it's the third leading cause for 10 to 14-year-olds. But can I tell you, it's happening even among our aging population at a rapid rate as well. So two real-life stories shape my words today. There's the story of Heman, who is the writer of Psalm 88 and who feels like he wants to die. And he wrote a psalm, a song about it for us. And my second story is that of Karen Londo, a Westwood member who felt like she wanted to die and did die by ending her own life in May of 2022. I want to give a shout out and a thanks to the Londo family. I officiated that service, and I asked permission if I might share some of what was shared in that service with all of you. It took a lot of courage, but can I tell you, they immediately said yes, because her life loves on, and there's healing to be had in her journey. And so two stories we look at. From Heman, we learn how to deal with darkness, and we'll see that there's mercy in it and grace in it. And from Karen's family, we know this, suicide raises all kinds of questions. 
So I'd like to address three questions that their family raised, but also any family who has um, been coping with a loved one who's died by suicide. I'll be honest, I really wrestled over the last couple of weeks just finding one sentence that you could take home with you wherever you might be, because there's so much here, it could all be lost. But there's a primary thought, and I, I wasn't sure what it was. So I did a little personal reflection in my own journey, and, and I went to the very first place in my life when I experienced darkness. I mean, real darkness. And I've shared the story before. I was just a little boy. I was 11 years of age. My parents had just gone through a divorce. I grew up in South Minneapolis, but my mom took all seven kids, J. Joel, Jaws, and Jody, Jill, JC, and Josh, to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> We didn't say goodbye to friends. I think she intended to come back. We didn't come back. And I isolated. I didn't connect with new friends. I wanted to come home. And I didn't do well in school. I was in fifth grade. And I, the teacher suggested that I repeat the fifth grade. I, I just, it, is, it astounds me today. I flunked the fifth grade. Who flunks the fifth grade? None of you have ever flunked the fifth grade. And that first day of fifth grade, the second time around, was a crucible moment in my life. Across the street from where we lived was the first Lutheran church. And one day, I was compelled, drawn in to that sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary. It was like a vacuum. It sucked me in. It didn't draw me in. It's like I could not not go in. And I went in, and there, as I'm going down the center aisle, I come to the front pew, and I sit. I'm just by myself. Nobody else is there. So peaceful. And I'm looking at this beautiful statue of Jesus, I'm 11 years old, so I can't tell you. There's a mystery to what happened. I, I, I attempt to put some words, but I really can't. There was a warmth that came over me, and I sensed that the Lord was saying, Joel, all is well. It's going to be okay. That feeling has been with me all of my life, and that's what I want you to leave with. Here's really the message today. All is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. There's a refrain to it. And because expression deepens impression, I'm gonna invite you to say it with me. All is well, but it doesn't always feel like it. All is well in Christ. We know that that's a promise that is given to us. But in life, it doesn't always feel like it. Because there's fracturing that happens. There's fear that enters into our life. There's guilt and there's shame that enters into our journey. There's embarrassment. There's failure. And we're left in this place where sometimes we just hate our lives or hate what we've said and what we've done in our life journey. And we have this beautiful picture and a reminder that all is well with him. Well, our first story comes from Heman. And we know from other places in the scripture, great guy, great dad, phenomenal worship leader, wrote songs that we're still singing today. <laughs> That's pretty good songwriting. That's who Heman is, but not in this moment. The wheels have come off, and I'm going to tell you, you feel his pain and anger. He wants to die, and he writes this song about it, and I'm taken back because this is a psalm, quite honestly. Uh, I've been in the psalms for a couple of years every morning, and I get to this psalm. I want to skim over it, more or less preach about it. I'll never preach on this psalm, and here I am preaching because <laughs> it's part of the word of God. I've got to bring it, and today I'm going to bring it. But of the 150 psalms that are there, only two psalms do not end with an uptick of hope. And this is one of them. It ends, in fact, with the word darkness. My only friend is darkness. It's hard 
to sit with someone who's swallowed up in darkness, don't you agree? But would you sit with Heman? And would you hear, I'm gonna read the whole psalm. Could you just take this in, please? Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. My prayer comes before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles. And my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the hand of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord, In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. And all day long, they surround me like a flood. And they have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor, Darkness is my closest friend. And so we read the psalm, and actually in the Hebrew, the last word is darkness. My closest friend is darkness. And it brings us to a point where we realize that people sometimes feel so bad about life, they just want to die. Even God's people. It might surprise you that in the Bible, we actually have six accounts of individuals who... um, took their own life. But we have many other stories of people who felt like they were dying, including some that might surprise you, like Moses. Moses, you know, he is under all this incredible pressure as he's trying to take the people to the promised land. They've been liberated from um, Egypt and slavery, and yet the people are, it's hard, and they just want to go back to Egypt. They just think Moses has failed in all of his leadership, and he is just fed up with them. And this is what we learn in Numbers. I cannot carry all these people by myself, Moses says. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. It's not that Moses wanted to die. He just couldn't go on with life the way it was going at that point. Or you consider Elijah, because Elijah was this incredible prophet. God did great things through him. But then this evil woman, Jezebel, shows up and hunts him down, wants him dead, and he flees for his life. He feels like he's a failure. But in fear and exhaustion, this is what we read. He went into the wilderness, sat under a broom tree, and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. Another one that might surprise you is Jonah. You might recall that story where God tells Jonah to go warn the Ninevites that unless they repent, their city and their lives will be destroyed. And I'm reading this in light of what's happening with Hamas right now in Israel, and I go, wow. And Jonah cannot believe 
that God would extend mercy to the enemies of Israel if they would repent. And so God rebukes Jonah. And this is what he says. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so we find these stories that sometimes people feel so bad that they just want to die. Even God's people, even Heman, and even Karen Londo. And Karen's story is the second story, and I want to weave Psalm 88 because the similarities are so amazing. When I asked the Londo family for permission, if I could share their story, I was taken back by their immediate yes on the first hand, but then a note that I received from Karen's daughter, Sarah. And I asked her if I could read the note. Just take this in, her words given to me this week. Suicide feels so distant when you think and hear about it. And then it happens to someone you love and it becomes deeply personal. For our mom, it was depression. It can't be seen on a scan or found in a blood sample, but it is a sickness. As a family, we work closely with our grief therapist to understand that our mom died of depression via suicide. So often we use the phrase commit suicide, but someone commits a crime and suicide is not that. It's a result of a sickness. Our family and our hope as a family is to honor our mom, wife, and grandmother by sharing her story and return help someone who is walking a similar path. You are not alone. That's a good word from Sarah to all of us. That her mom's life loves on we will benefit from that even now. But I'm also pricked in my own conscience. I will never again use the phrase, one committed suicide. It's a good corrective for us because we use words, but words start to use us and it changes the dimension of them. I personally knew Karen. Here's a photo of her. Her face was real. Her joy was contagious, as you can even see. She was lovely, 64 years of age when she passed. She was a greeter here. She was involved with all kinds of ministry, our prison ministry, as well as served our kids and did all kinds of outreach. And I'm gonna tell you, she loved Jesus Christ and loved his word. In his word, the scriptures actually saved her many times. And in her Bible, I found several sheets of paper with her handwriting on it, including the words of Romans 12 too. She wrote, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I think, how many times did she pick up that piece of paper? Karen, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. She was holding on. She was holding on. See, suicide raises questions. And I want to address three questions that were raised by the Londo family that I addressed in that service, but also any family who loses a loved one who ends their life. And the first question is simply this. How does a person of such deep faith, effervescent joy, come to the point of believing that their life is better not lived? I mean, if you have faith, like Karen, if you believe that God is the giver and the taker of life, like Karen's, then how do you get to this given place? I mean, we think to ourselves, this faith should help you cope, and it does. That this faith should help you 
come to a point of reasoning that says there's an, another alternative that the reason to end your life is not a good one, and that's true. But I want you to consider the most serious cases of darkness because darkness swallows up common sense. That is, you don't reason things out the way that you normally reason things out. But also, darkness diminishes our longing for better days. You know, we take for granted that we have this longing for better days. But when you're in the most serious places of darkness, that longing dissipates, and you don't see things the way you normally see things. I've referenced before a dear friend of mine in my previous church who ended his life. It wasn't his first attempt, there were many. And in the many times that we met together, he allowed me to get real personal and he was transparent when I asked him the question, what is it that you're actually feeling? Because I've never felt that kind of darkness so deep. I said, what are you actually feeling when you get to that given point? And he said, Joel, this is what I'm feeling. I'm in a cave. And the entrance to the cave slowly is sealed until no light is coming in and I'm completely engulfed with darkness. And the reason for life goes with it. What a hard thing, a humbling thing for me to hear. So I gave him my phone number. Isn't that what well-intentioned people do? I said, call me 24-7. I was sincere. Just if two in the morning, just give me a call. Because just talking about it can really help, and we know that to be true. But he didn't call. He didn't call, and I learned something. Darkness swallows up our reasoning, our seeing, and our hope. And we have a mindset to say, we put the burden on them, call me. We have a go-to philosophy. We gotta change the philosophy, and, and instead of come to me, let's go to them. So when you get that GP and that prompting, you call. And you step in because it can really make a difference. Sociologists have a word for what happens here. It's called flooding. Heman, this guy who wrote Psalm 88, he was not a sociologist, but can I tell you, he coined the phrase flooding, not contemporary sociologists. You, you, you call what he said. This is what he says. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. If you've ever been in a place where you feel like you're drowning, you're just doing everything you can to keep your head bobbing above water. And people in the deepest darkness, this is their experience. Flooding happens when intense feelings and thoughts and sensations override our capacity, our ability to deal with the present moment. It can be because of biology or psychology or society, but you feel hopelessness. That is, believing things will never get better. And you feel helplessness, believing that there's nothing you can do about it. And it creates this detachment. Even though it's a perceived reality, it creates that detachment with self and God and others. And the most serious cases of flooding, you begin to think, I don't have a reason to be here, or it would be better for everyone else if I'm gone. And I don't think Karen wanted to end her life. She just wanted to end her pain or the pain or the burden she felt she was bringing to others, even though it was more perceived than reality. So I hope this gives a word of encouragement and of help to us in our own journey, that when we're at a place to say, what if, when my friend 
died after I said, call me. I, I dealt with the, what if, if I could have done this, what should I have done here? It's a spiral, and it just takes you in dark places itself. I hope this gives some encouragement. With those that are in the most serious places, hopelessness and helplessness tends to be their domain, no matter what you say or you do. So two stories and so much darkness. But as you see, you know, Karen loved God, had faith in Jesus Christ, but Heman loved God too. And it, in fact, the psalm opens up with that. I want you to see his love for God. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And so he, he's a guy who's saying every day, he's calling on God. He's coming to God. He's saying, I trust you as my Savior. But in this moment, he's feeling abandoned and utterly alone. And so you got to ask, why is this psalm included? And I hadn't done that deep dive until I prepared for this message because it's not an easy psalm to read, more or less preach. And I go, why is this psalm included? I think this psalm is teaching us about how to deal with darkness. Before you get to be so dark that you not only think about death but want to act on death. And so what is it specifically that it's teaching us in this first little segment? I think it's saying, first of all, that you can be a God follower like, like um, um, Heman was, and you can be a Christ follower like Karen and still live in darkness for a very long time with a feeling like it's not going to get better. That can happen to us. And so I think the psalm is reminding us, it's bringing a correction to our expectation because in the underlying expectation of our world, we think, oh, we have this deep faith, we do all this good, we're engaged with making a difference in the world, and we think certainly God would not let me experience the real dark stuff. Yeah, maybe some hard things will come along, but not the deep dark stuff, but it's teaching us that it can, and it does. So I think what's most important, it's teaching us about mercy, that there is a mercy in it in the darkness. And what is that mercy? The mercy is, I suppose in one word, readiness. That we can face darkness because we know it can happen to us. And so I use that word readiness to define faith, that faith is a readiness. I've always applied that in terms of all the good things that God wants to do in and through me, and that God is always doing good, but it's also to help me face the dark things that happen and the hard things. It's both and. I'm ready, God, for you to step in. It prepares us to face the darkness and to embrace that refrain again, that all is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. All is well in Christ, but it doesn't always feel like that. Would you join me in it? All is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. It takes me to the second question. Did Karen's death separate her from the love of God? Because some people ask, is Karen safe with Christ because she ended her life? And some of you make that, well, like, why would that question come up? You wouldn't believe how often that question comes up because for many centuries, unfortunately, the church taught that to take your life is an unpardonable sin, which means heaven is not yours. Wow. Now, I suppose the upside of that teaching is that it kept a lot of people from taking their life. The downside of that teaching is it's not in the Bible. And the downside of that teaching is that it creates devastating grief for a lifetime for those left behind when a loved one ends their own life. Fortunately, that doctrine has been 
corrected by and large in the church. It is not an unpardonable sin, but let me be clear, it doesn't mean that we are granted permission or green light to end our own life, that God is the giver of life and he's the one who takes it, that we are not to end our own life. I've always loved the refrain that you find among the Jewish people. When you're having dinner with the Jewish, they always do a toast. And you know what the toast is? L'chaim. And L'chaim means to life because God is the life giver. It's in his hands. And Karen, she loved Jesus. And the promise of scripture is that God loves Karen in her death as in her life, that she is with the Lord now experiencing eternal joy. And what gives us that confidence is this, Karen's faith and God's grace. God's grace that comes with a promise for Karen who is in Christ. And there's so many verses that remind us that once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are sealed in his mighty right hand and we cannot be snatched out of his hand. And probably the most familiar text to you is from Romans 8, but take it in again. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, it's a powerful word, I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen and amen. That is our confidence. We are in the mighty right hand of God and no one can snatch us out of it. So you just gotta just see what God is saying here. He's just saying, God is saying to you, I love you so much. So love God, receive that love. He's saying, I love you so much. There is no one who will love you in your life the way I will love you. Nothing will separate my love from you. No matter who you are, what you've gone, love me because you will find how much I love you. And Karen held on to that as well. In her Bible, I found these words as well. No earthly catastrophe can ever separate us from the grip of his grace or the legacy of his love. It was found in that Romans text. As a reminder, she was holding on to this promise, trying to hold on to life in her journey. And yet, I know Karen asked why, just like we do. Why the darkness? Why the depression? Why the anxiety? I could do so much more for you, God, if I didn't have all these things. But do you realize that Heman does the same thing? He, he's saying, God, why? Why all this darkness that you're putting me in? We've seen the questions. In fact, he asks these sarcastic rhetorical questions, did you pick them up? I mean, wow, the things that he says to God. He says, do you show wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction, and your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of the oblivion? All these um, rhetorical questions that he puts forth there, and he's saying, God, why do you allow this to happen? Don't you realize that I love you? I want to tell people about your love. I want to serve you. I want to make a difference and bring good into the world by your power and goodness. But do you know how hard it is to do that when you're swallowed up in darkness? He's just swallowed up. God set me free is what he's asking for in this time and place. And so he's uncorked. He's not praying in this prayer. Did you get this? Oh, thy will be done. I know this is hard, thy will be done. He's not praying that. He just gets uncorked and he lets God have it. Could you visualize yourself writing something in a prayer to God like these words? I mean, it just seems so utterly inappropriate to me. But he does it. 
and there must be reason. Why is this psalm included? I mean, why would God allow one of the psalmists to write words that you think would dissuade people from wanting to know who this God is because of what he accuses him of? He just accuses him of the most horrible things, but in fact, it's included because God allowed it to be included for a reason. The psalmist teaching us how to deal with darkness. Tim Keller found Derek Kidner's commentary helpful on this passage. I don't want to share his words. They're helpful. The very presence of such prayers in the scripture is a witness to his understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. What is it teaching us? It's teaching us that there's a grace in it. Not just a mercy in it, but a grace in it. A grace in the dark times. That God is really saying to Heman, and really to me and to you, Joel, I am your God. And I am the God of grace. Not because you put on a happy face every day, and not because you say everything right and do everything right, because we don't. And he's really calling out the psalmist. What you're saying here is not true about me. Your interrogation is not true. But I understand what you're feeling he understands, he identifies with us. That's a grace position that he takes. He acknowledges our desperation so that we can declare together in our refrain these very words, all is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. Say it with me again. All is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. Which takes me to the third question and just briefly before we come to the table of communion, why didn't God stop Karen from dying? If this God is so powerful and such a life giver, then why didn't he stop Karen from dying? It's a good question. I can't answer it completely, but let me give you some perspective in two ways. First of all, the truth is that God did stop Karen from dying many times. He used family and friends, his scriptures, even circumstances to intervene. It was not her first attempt or her second attempt. There were many attempts. And God intervened again and again to give her more days than ever she thought she would get through. And I think about that. Have you ever thought in your life, wow, that, I should be dead. <laughs> Have you ever wondered, you know, how close you've come to death, but you don't know where God intervened? I think we're going to learn that. I did a little reflection. I can think of six times in my life where I thought I was dead and gone. <laughs> and I lived. With thankfulness, I lived. How many times does he intervene for us? And then secondly, the truth also is that God does not always overrule the bad decisions or choices that we make. Have you ever made a bad decision and you saw the consequences just affirmed how bad it truly was? He's given us this gift of free will. He intervenes, he intervenes, but we still make choices. Before we come to this table, I just want to give you some good advice. First, you may be a person in darkness, maybe even flooding, and then I commend you because you came today, and this message is probably speaking to you in a very personal way. Can I encourage you, if you're in this place, do what Heman did, that though he didn't get what he wanted, don't have a faith that only trusts God when you get what you want from him. Though he didn't get what he wanted, I want you to know that even though he got uncorked, and even though from my perspective it was inappropriate what he was saying to God, I want you to notice that Heman was saying it to God. He was still calling on God. He was coming to God. My closest friend is darkness, not you. Can you imagine saying to God, my closest friend right now, it is not you, it is darkness. But 
I want you to know he declares it before God. And I think in so doing, he's saying, I love you, and I look to you. I know you are my Savior, so bring it to God. Bring it to this table and just let God have it if you need to. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. He understands our desperation. But come to him. Call on him. You can also write a lament. Um, you can write a song like Heman did, but share it with someone. Do not keep it inside. Um, take a hold of it. Be vulnerable. Be transparent. If we can be a healing church, there's going to be more permission for be able to share their, their dark places. Secondly, good advice. You, you may know someone who is already flooding, and the number one thing to do when that's the case, and all the research I've done is really quite simple, and that is to listen. Wow. Who would have ever thought there's a mystery to good listening? There's a healing. And I have to give a shout out quickly to Megan Condet, who is a mental health provider. Um, we've known her for a long time. She's provided all kinds of resources that are available online related to darkness, but as well as to suicide and different aspects of it. One of those resources was a children's book called The Rabbit Listened. I had not heard of that book. But if you're a grandparent or a parent, get this book for your kids. It's really for you, but get it for your kids. It'll speak to you. And it speaks about a young child who is in despair and darkness, doesn't know what to do, wheels are coming off, and all these animal creatures come to rescue. A chicken who comes and tucks, 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 tucks. Um, an ostrich who puts the head in the sand. Um, and a rabbit. It ends with a rabbit who comes. and sits right by this little child and listens and healing starts to unfold. Beautiful book, great resources, take advantage of it. So we come to this table, but with a refrain. Would you join me? All is well, but it doesn't always feel like all is well. He knows that. And how do we know it's still well? Because of the words in Matthew's gospel. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Heman felt like he was in total darkness, but it was temporary for him. Jesus was in total darkness. Heman felt abandoned, but Jesus is the only one who's ever been totally abandoned, friends, family, and his Father in heaven. He even felt like darkness was his closest friend, but it was a feeling. For Jesus, it was real. He's the only one who has experienced the total impact of darkness. When he takes upon himself your sin and my sin, and the Father turns away in that moment. If you feel abandoned, his promise is to never abandon you. If you go into the Garden of Gethsemane, you find that there darkness engulfs Jesus, and he says to his friends, stay with me, stay with me. They leave, but he stays and he prays for them and for himself. When he goes to the cross and darkness envelops him in the cross, he had the power to be released from that place, but he stays. He stays. 
And he takes the brunt of your sin and my sin so that we can live and have love and know his love and to know that all is well even when it doesn't feel like all is well. So the best advice I could give as we close out our time is come to this table and receive the bread which is the love of Christ revealed in Jesus Christ and uh, receive the cup. And remember a suffering so that you can know he stays with you that all is well. So join me and let's pray. Father God, thank you for a gift of grace and mercy, a mercy that helps us understand that darkness is indeed part of the life in which we live so we can face it, and a grace that says, man, I love you, not because of our loveliness, not because we wake up with a smile on our face or we say the right things or do the right things because we don't, and there you are with grace saying, oh, how I love you. Receive my love and know that all is well. So we come to this table and we receive the bread and cup knowing all is well with you in Christ our Lord.